Let's pray together as we get started today. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your glory. We thank you that all that we do need today is you. We pray that, Lord, as we study the word together, we would know your presence and power among us, that you would teach us from the scripture and the way that we should go. Lord, as we begin a new year, we want to be faithful. We want to reflect. We want to analyze where it's needed. We want a purpose and resolve in the spirit of what we heard Wednesday night and Second Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. To purpose to do good work in faith, in the power of the Spirit for your glory. So Lord, as we study your word, we pray that you would teach us, you would lead us, and that, Lord, we would leave a changed people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. As many of you know, Pastor Brennan um, is in Atlanta with a group of our college-age students at Passion, and they're planning on heading home later tonight. He said the week is going great, and they've had a, a great time. And so I encourage you to be back tonight. Josh will be uh, preaching for us tonight. And, um, and um, so I wanted to spend our time this morning from Philippians chapter 1. Paul, in many of his letters, um, encloses a prayer. A prayer for those that he's writing the letter to. And in this case, in Philippians, he's writing to the believers at Philippi. And in chapter 1, we have recorded this prayer of these three verses. So let's begin reading in verse 3. We'll pick up with the prayer in verse 9. And Al, I think that ringing is coming from 5, if you'll turn that down. Um, just turn it out all the way. Thank you. Um, verse 3, beginning in chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you, all with affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you, this is January the 4th, 2015. How many of you have already made a New Year's resolution? Oh, not as many as I expected. Are some of you just late on that or you're just not planning on making one or? (laughs) Um, Well, I. I'm not a big New Year's resolution uh, type guy. I haven't typically done that. You may say, well, yeah, we can see that on you in some ways. Uh, but um, 
But I'm, I'm typically not wired that way. Um, and it's interesting how when we talk about this time of year that we do end up talking about things like that a lot with folks. Um, we talk about, you know, changes and think, surmising and surveying the last year. And, uh, you know, some, some people I've seen on Facebook already have put, you know, a summary of, of their past year and whether it's really good or really bad or I'm hoping next year is better or so on and so forth. And we can all sit here and there, there is just a sense of change in there at this time of the year. It's like we know there's a year has come to a close and we know a year is, is opening afresh and anew. And there's something about that freshness and that newness that makes us want to kind of think ahead and think down the road a little bit. And that's a healthy thought. Um, I've kind of purposed in the last several years of my life that about six months, every six months, I'm going to take some time and, so to speak, pick my head up and survey the landscape and, and ask myself some questions, some big, broad questions that I think I need to ask myself every once in a while that are just healthy for life and living. Because if not, it, where our tendency is to kind of get close, close focused, if you will, or zoomed in on an aspect of life or living, and before we know it, years can go by. Many, many years can go by. I always thought that, you know, I was just getting started in life, and, and, uh, and I got into my mid-30s, and I realized, hey, I'm not getting started. I'm kind of in the middle of this thing called life. It's happening. It's, you know, my kids are growing up, and Silas drove me down the road the other day, and I thought, this is scary. This is really scary. I don't understand. How do we get here so quick? It happens so fast, doesn't it? Well, as we think about this time of introspection, if you will, and resolution. It's time for a time, a season for assessment. And it naturally lends to the thought of change, doesn't it? When you're, when you're thinking about New Year's resolutions, you're, you're ultimately talking about change. And I'll just say to you, the gospel is all about change. I'm not sure about some of the New Year's, year's resolutions that are made, and, and I know a lot of them are, are very focused on the outward appearance and different things like that. Um, I'm not going to get up in all that today, but I will say this, that the gospel is, is, is very pointedly about your and, I, and my sanctification, about us growing up in Christ Jesus, being changed in the power of his might. The Holy Spirit in us making changes. And, I, and so I hope as you look back over the past year, there's some things in your life that you would say, you know what, the Lord has dealt with me. The Lord has brought me a long way. The Lord has made some des- uh, definite changes in my life in the past year. And then as you look toward the, the new and coming year, I hope that you would say, well, there's some things I know already that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger upon in my life that, that desperately need to change in my life. And I want to partner with him in that change. Well, this, this passage of Scripture that we're going to focus in on today, um, specifically verses 9 through 11, lends very much to that. As we talk about life in general, um, we, we could surmise our lives in, in a couple different ways. I, I like to quote Romans 12, 1 and 2 a lot. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may test and discern what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. You know, in that, in that passage of Scripture, we would surmise and say, life is all about worship. It's, it's me giving myself to God in worship day in, day out, not just on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night. 
And, and, and then we would say, ultimately, kind of the pinnacle and peak of our lives is to bring glory to God. John Piper's made very popular this phrase, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And as we think about life and living, and we think about as believers, what do we want uh, the testimony of our lives to be? Because, you know, there's going to come a day, not too far in the distant future, when someone is going to pre- be presiding over our funeral. That's a kind of a morbid thought. That's a hard thought, but that's a, a real thought, isn't it? This, this life just passes by so fast. It, it's here today, gone tomorrow. That's, the Bible talks about it as a blade of grass. It's here today, gone tomorrow. as a breath that's, that's breathed out. And, and so I spend a lot of time around this time of the year thinking about the long term, the, the end of the game, so to speak. What do we want to be? What do we want our testimony to be at the end of our days? How do we want people to perce- have perceived our lives and what we've lived our lives for? And because the reality of it is, just as, just as the Bible talks about children and them being an arrow that's shot out from, from your family and, and your life, in, in a very real sense, our lives have this pointedness to them. They're all going somewhere. They're all accomplishing something. And the pinnacle and point of this life, according to Scripture, is to bring glory to God, to bring much glory to Him. And so any resolutions that we have in our hearts and minds this morning that don't include in some way or some form or some fashion bringing more glory to God, then they don't really account with the Scripture. Because that has to be the pinnacle. And that is the pinnacle here in Philippians chapter 1. In verse 11, that last phrase he says, To the glory and praise of God. Now, what we're going to see in verses 9 through 11 is this step motion, this building motion, if you will, of phrases upon one another. And we're going to pay close attention to the um, conjunctions today and how these phrases tie together. But I want you to see right from the beginning that where we're headed is to give God all the worship, to give him all the glory with our lives, to the glory and praise of God. That's the end phrase. That's where we're going. So let's just begin together in verse 9. Paul is praying. Now, why is he praying? First and foremost, we just need to understand this. Brandon said this Wednesday night, and I think it's so appropriate that Paul is praying because he recognizes if any resolve that we have in our hearts this morning, we know, according to the Scripture, that we cannot accomplish them on our own. In other words, the Holy Spirit has to be at work in us for any real and lasting God-glorifying change to take place. And so that's why Paul is praying for this group of believers and not just appealing to this group of believers. He's not just saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, let's get some things in order here, boys. Let's get it together. That's not what he's saying. He's calling upon God to help, to intervene. But he's also calling upon believers to resolve. It's both and. It's us working with the Spirit, cooperating in this journey of sanctification. And so in in verse 9, he says, for God is, uh, excuse me, and this is my power And this is my prayer, excuse me, that your love may abound more and more. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now, this word abound literally means to be filled up to overflowing. May abound more and more. And so he says, already filled up to overflowing. And I hope it just does that more and more and more. And and I'll just say, in in our day, love is a a big uh, catch term, catch phrase. and, And when we talk about love... In the marketplace, so to speak, the definition that gets tied to that word can be varied and very broad, right? Very 
very loose, if you will. And in, in our culture in our day, what we see a lot of is what I'll call sentimentality. It's a, it's a squishy, emotional-driven sense of truth. And when it comes to love, what we talk about a lot of times is just a love that's kind of a felt love. You know, I feel loved, I don't feel loved. You hear statements like this being said all the time, especially if you turn on the TV. I like it when he loves me. If you turn on the Hallmark Channel, it's all about love, the squishy kind of love, right? It's all about this. And, and, and we all like the squishy kind of love. It's kind of nice to, to be loved in the emotional and feel that sense of emotion towards one another. But I want to remind us when we come to the Scripture, it's not just talking about an emotional love. And the, the clearest example of that is in marriage. When God talks about the union between a man and woman, um, he's not saying love your wife in the sense that, uh, or wives love your husband in the sense that you're always just going to have this squishy excitement in your heart all the time. Um, I, I know Elisa has those all the time, but I, I don't quite have those all the time. But, it, you know, it, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, all, it doesn't mean, it's, there's more of a covenant relational tie there it's a it's through the thick and thin right in richer or poor and sickness and in health you remember those vows that we that we quote that that covenant love that says it's there's going to be days i don't feel the squishy and the emotional it's not going to all be wrapped up in there but but love genuine love gospel love says it goes beyond that right it, it's it's beyond those seasons of emotion that are that way into a commitment a covenant it says, hey, hey, you're stuck with me for life. <laughs> and I'm stuck with you. And you know what? I'm glad I'm stuck with you. Because that's what real love is. And see, when Jesus said, I love you, he, he did it for a once and for all, no divorce, no dividing kind of love. You, you, you're on that page. He, he said, I love you. I love you to the cross. I'm taking your sin upon me, and I'm going to go pay the penalty so that you can be mine forever. And so, good news of great joy that Christ has come, and he's come for us, and he's come to express to you and I that he loves us in a, in a non-squishy, non-just-an-emotional roller coaster kind of way, in a very permanent, very covenantal, very abiding, very eternal way. And so when Paul says, I pray that your love may abound, he does say your love but I, I would say to us, just right from the get-go, that the way I learn how to love is by being loved by God. It, it's, it's not... Uh, love is, is one of those things that you have to learn, really, how to truly love somebody. And it's not... You're not going to learn it from Dr. Phil on the, on the TV. You're going to learn it from the God who loves with an unbelievable, amazing love. And Paul says, this is the kind of love that needs to abound more and more but he helps us because he doesn't just say love and just kind of leave it dangling out there with no parameter he says very specifically let love abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment with knowledge and discernment that word knowledge is actually in the greek text twice which means you might translate it true knowledge or Knowledge, knowledge, meaning he's putting an emphasis there, emphasis there, and then all discernment. And so let's look at these two words. And here's, here's kind of the picture I have in my mind when I think about these two words. You know, in our culture, love is just kind of thrown out of there as a broad word that's not really defined very clearly. 
oftentimes in the scripture what we'll see is God gives us guardrails, if you will, or today we'll call them riverbanks, okay? I like to float the river and be on the river. That's a lot of fun to me and, and my boys and my girls. And so when you're going and you're winding down the river, isn't that, is, have you ever done that before? It's just a lot of fun to go down through there and, and you see all the scenery and all those things. But, but there's been one time in my life that I was on the river when it was overflowing its banks, literally going outside of its banks. It was pretty, a pretty scary experience, actually, because the trees are hanging down and the rivers come up so high that you're kind of having to wind through the trees and not just, you can't really find the river. And you know what? I, I have this picture in my mind of our culture and its def- definition of love is, is a lot like that river when it's running out of its banks. And if you know anything about what happens when rivers run out of their banks, they do a, they do a lot of damage, don't they? Flood crops and fields and and, and just ruin entire months of growth and harvest that's, that's to be harvested. They um, sweep away houses. Have you ever seen imagery of different floods and, and things like that? When rivers go outside of their banks, they do a lot of destruction. But when they're in their banks, it's this, we have this picture, this scenery, this, you know, it's the poster. It's the picture that you hang in your office. It's beautiful. And love, defined by God, it's like that it's like that picture, if you will. Within the boundaries, it's right. It's beautiful. But when it overflows its banks, it's very destructive. So that's why we've got to come back to the Scripture to define love. We've got to allow the Scripture to define it. And, and he gives us two specific words today that give us some parameters, if you will, some understanding. We'll call them the river banks of, of love today. And first he says knowledge. This is a precise knowledge. Now, now, first of all, take the word knowledge and, and you knock off the last part and you got the word know, right? Knowledge, true and abiding knowledge or true and abiding wisdom only comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can go, in, you can go to any school you want to. You can go to, and gather any degrees you want to. Um, sit, spend as much time under the, quote, intellectual minds of the day. And I think what you would still have is some intellectual knowledge, but I'm not sure that we would call it the same Bible knowledge or wisdom. Matter of fact, I know we would not call it that. Because wisdom is not learned in that way. Wisdom comes from a relationship with God. The type of knowledge that I think Paul was referring to here and that he's praying for is, is a nature, it's the nature of God working in us. His work on our souls, his great design in the gospel and our duty it's a divine knowledge. A, a knowledge, again, God gave us this word so that we could know him, so that we could grow in knowledge and know him. And so this, this kind of understanding, let's, let's apply that um, just a little bit. When we talk about, uh, let's, let's apply it to a specific area. When in our day, uh, there's lots of different mindsets and uh, perspectives on parenting. And uh, if you read the... The latest book on parenting, uh, you'll hear all kinds of different philosophies and thoughts. And and many of you have heard probably in the news in the last several months, the last couple of years about spanking specifically. That, you know, shouldn't spank your child, especially in public, because then somebody could call the police. And now you could be held accountable on some level for child abuse. Or there's all kinds of different stories and court cases and all these kind of things going on. But I just want to come back and just say, how does the Bible define love when it comes to the issue of spanking? The Bible says that 
not spoil, uh, it says spare the rod, not spoil the child. That's what our society says. The Bible says you spare the rod, you, anybody know how, the, the word there? You hate your child. That's what the Bible says. If I spare the rod, I hate my child. The Bible says very, very clearly that spanking is, is, a, is something to be used in child-rearing as an act of love. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't jive with our society, does it? It doesn't, it doesn't go with the popular textbooks of the day. And so this is just one of those areas where society's knowledge and the gospel knowledge don't accord with one another. And we've got to come back to and say, what, what do we want? Do we want, to, do we want to show love in the, in the river banks of God's discernment and knowledge? Or do we want to adapt a cross view of uh, the open plain of the ocean, so to speak, when it comes to love with anything goes, as long as it's emotionally feel good? And I'll just come back and encourage you that when it comes to any issue of love in your life, we've got to let God define what, what love really looks like. When it comes to uh, the second word, he talks about discernment. Now, this word discernment is uh, not used in the same form anywhere else in the, in the Scripture. It is used in a different, uh, with a different tense in uh, Hebrews 5.14 where it says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. So we see in this text very clearly that Paul is praying for the believers to grow up in in something to be sanctified, we would say, is our is our big term that we use for change in our lives as believers. And he's saying specifically when it comes to this area of discernment, there there is a real reality where we need to be trained. We need to understand and need to change in our and grow in our understanding of what discernment really is. And so in Hebrews five eleven he, he narrows it down to distinguish between good and evil. Between that which is of God, that which is not of God. That which is for God, that which is against God. And so it's another, another area of life where we can see, or another area of love that we can see that it, it has to be practiced with discernment. When you go back to my illustration earlier about child rearing. When, when spanking children, you have to use some discernment. You can't just um, do the same discipline for every offense, right? And you have to spank in such a way as to be loving and kind, and you have to restore the relationship after you spank the child. And there's, there's some right ways to do it, and, and then there's some very wrong ways to do it in there. And that's kind of what we're scared of. We see in our culture in our day extremisms of things that, that God has ordained and, yet, and so what we tend to do is when we see something like we hear of a case where somebody has beat a child or mistreated a child in a very severe way, then our tendency is to want to run to the other side. And I would just encourage you that, again, let's come back to the Scripture. And what we see here is God's put some banks on this in, de- in helping us define what love really looks like. And first, it has to be 
defined by knowledge from the Word and from a relationship with the Lord, and then has to be discernment used in each case. Let me give you a little bit of uh, a different picture. In this coming year, how many decisions do you think you have in front of you to make? A couple hundred? A few thousand? How many decisions do you think you've made today already? 10, 20? I read an article, uh, it's been some years ago, that talked about how many thousands of decisions you make in a day that you just don't cognitively think about those decisions. You, you made a decision to sit down in that chair. Did you, you didn't think about it, you just, you just sit down. You're making a decision right now to listen to my voice, to look at me with your eyes, but you're not cognitively going, okay, look, okay, listen, but you're making those decisions, right? You're making decisions all through the day, all day, every day. And this next part of our verse here, look down at the scripture with me. He's given us these two uh, riverbanks, if you will, to help us define love, knowledge, and discernment. That has to be, love has to be defined in these ways. But notice the purpose, so that you may approve what is excellent. So that you may approve what is excellent. And so, go back to this thought of making all these decisions. How do I know what's the best thing to choose? Have you ever, have you ever experienced this in your life where, I'm sure you have, that we have so many things in front of you that seem all ne- that need to be done at the same time. Maybe that happened to you this Christmas. You had presents to wrap and cookies to make and all these kind of preparations to make for guests and place to be and all these things going on at the same time. And you've got to, at the end of the day, you've had to make some decisions on some things to leave out and some things to include. You have to decide what's best. All of us are deciding what we believe is best virtually every day, virtually every moment of every day. We're making decision after decision after decision to to, to say, this is what we believe is best to do right now. And, and so here, that begs the question, is what drives that decision, right? That decision-making process. What makes, what makes it tick, so to speak? What, what's the, the impetus that makes, it, makes me think this way and make this decision over this decision? And I would suggest to you it could be many things in your life that, that cause you to make the decisions you make. It could be... Uh, it could be money that causes you to make decisions you make. It could be um, certain circumstances or, or even fear of people that cause you to make certain decisions that you make. And, and let me just short, shorten that up by saying there's lots of different idols out there that we can own in our lives that would cause us to make life-altering decisions in all forms and fashions because we so want to please or we so want to have or we so want to. You just fill in the blank. But from the scripture, from our text this morning, there's a direct tie between love and all this decision-making process. And if I can just boil it down and say it to you this way, there is a deliberate command. Let's let's go in the scripture. Go back with me to uh, Matthew chapter 22. Let's look at this together. Matthew chapter 22, and and I'll begin reading in verse 34. Matthew 
Matthew 22, verse 34, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Okay? So the Pharisees have figured out that the Sadducees had gotten whooped, and so they're going to take their stab now at Jesus to see if they can prove him wrong. And they ask him a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And here's what Jesus said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus summarized all the law and the prophets. says all of it hangs on these two commandments. This is a summary. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And by doing that, by saying love the Lord and love your neighbor... Do you see something that's this, this very overarching, very all-encompassing? God puts this huge amount of importance on relationship. First and foremost, in our relationship with Him. And then second, in our relationship with each other. He didn't put the emphasis on money. He didn't put the emphasis on power. He didn't put the emphasis on prestige and possessions or anything else. He puts the emphasis on loving. Loving Him and loving each other. So then let's come back to Philippians chapter 1. And it, and it helps us make this tie. He's saying, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So what should be the key that turns the lock, if you will, the The impetus of this motivation in our lives to decision-making should be love. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. So in a real sense, when I'm thinking about the decisions that I have to make in my day, I could say it like this. I want to decide, I want to make the decision that is most loving. It would be a simple, simplistic way to say it. I just want to, I want to make the decision that's most loving. And what I mean by that is not a cultural, mushy-gushy, feel-good, I want to do what feels best. No, because discipline in our children <laughs> is not the most fun thing to do, is it? I'm just kind of using that as an example. Dealing with hard relationships is not a fun thing to do, is it? Saying a rebuking word or uh, an even an encouraging word oftentimes can be belaboring and, and, and hard for certain people at certain times. And so there's all kinds of things that the Bible says to do they don't feel mushy, ushy, gushy, fun all the time, right? That the Bible calls love that it's not doesn't acquaint with this definition of love in our society that's feel good all the time. And so how should I view it? Well, I've got to come back to the scripture. That God's parameters reign and rule in my life. Call upon Him for help and say, Okay, Lord, I want to do what your scripture says. I want to do that which is most loving. 
I want to make the right decision, and I want to make it with the right motivation. Because you know you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, and you don't get credit for it. You know that, don't you? (laughs) We're all about doing the right thing in our day, about putting on the mask, you know, have the good morals. And, you know, we come sit in church, and we want want everybody to think good of us. And and that's a good—that's not a bad thing. But— but if it's if it's so we can put on a face that's not really true of our inward heart, that's not a good thing. That's called hypocrisy, and that's not what we want. What we do want is to have genuine and loving hearts that that and lives that are being changed, in lives that we can say, you know, I'm not perfect, but God is changing me. There is proof of the gospel in my life. God is put the has put the Holy Spirit in my heart, and and He is doing a great work in me. And I praise Him for that work. I praise Him. For what he's doing in my heart and life. And I pray that um, he would use it even in your life. How do we make those decisions? Those, those many, many decisions. We make them in this understanding. Lord, I want to do what is most loving. Loving to you. And loving to those around me. That's how you prove what's excellent. Look at that. Next verse, lest we think this is just a kind of a flippant thing or something that uh, is a good idea that Paul's saying. I want you to notice with me these next, next contingencies here. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's a direct correlation between you choosing... You choosing what's best from a heart of love towards God and love towards your neighbor. There's a direct tie and direct correlation to that and you walking pure and blameless before the Lord. In other words, this isn't optional. It's not just if you want to kind of thing. It's actually, this is what it's going to take to bring glory and praise to God. That's the last phrase. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going towards and, and this is actually what it's going to take. He's saying, I, I'm praying that love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment that you may approve what's best and so be pure and blameless. Now, what does it mean to be pure and blameless? Well, pure is, um, this word pure in the Greek, it literally means, back in that day there was a lot of uh, people who made pottery. And things like that, um, and so if a if a guy wanted to be kind of uh, crooked, he he might would fire a piece of pottery and it would get a crack in it. If you've ever dealt with pottery, that happens often when you make make a bowl or you make a pot or you make anything and you fire it in the kiln, and it may get a crack in it. And what they would do if they wanted to still sell that pot because nobody would buy a pot with a crack in it, right? is they would take wax and they would smear over that crack and then they would take some clay dust and they would put over it and they would make it look like there was no crack there at all. Just kind of cover it over. But you and I know the first time that pot gets hot, what's going to happen? That wax is going to melt and it's going to reveal there's a flaw there. And so this word pure literally comes from what they would do is they would take a pot and... You've done this before with other things, is you hold it up to the sunlight or to a light, and if, if there was wax in that crack, then it would go through, the light would go through that wax, and you could tell that there was a crack in the pot. And that's literally where this word comes from. 
And so, I mean, I think I would be amiss this morning if I, if I didn't say the reality of it is, is if we're trying to make the decisions of our life, if we're trying to purpose in our life how to live it, apart from the commands of God, apart from this overarching understanding that, that God has, Jesus has laid out, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, then, then our lives have a, a crack in them. There's a flaw there. And, and, I'll, and I'll say it this way, it will make us useless for the kingdom of God and for His glory. We've got to come back to the Scripture and we've got to let the Scripture dictate to us the Lord in His goodness, in His kindness. He has set a standard not because He wants to bring harm to us, but because He loves us with such a great love. And He's showing us here very clearly how if we want our lives to bring glory and praise to His name, here is what we should do. Well, quickly, the next step of that is be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Being pure and blameless lends right into bearing fruit. If, if our lives are not pure and blameless, then we're, we're going to struggle to bear any fruit that's of any count. And so if one of your New Year's resolutions are, is to, uh, to nail some nails in the coffin of that sin that keeps besetting you as... Hebrews talks about, or maybe there's some things in your life that you know are just hindering you, some idols in your life that need to go down, and, and you need to, in the words of that song, begin to sing from your heart, Jesus, only Jesus, with all that you are. This is a good understanding, because the reality is, we can't, we can't live Gratifying the desires of the flesh and walking in the Spirit. And gratifying, bringing and bearing fruit for the glory of God. Now, I do want to say this quickly on the heels of that. I'm not saying that you're going to live a perfect life. That you're not going to fall. That's not what I'm saying. But if you're staying defeated all the time, you're not experiencing the joy that David talked about when he said, Restore to me the joy of my salvation in chapter 51 of Psalms. It's very easy for us to, to find ourselves in this rotation of sin that keeps us and hinders us from ever bearing fruit. And I think Paul says very clearly here, the step to breaking that process is to get your eyes off of yourself. Confess your sin, turn from your sin, and you set your eyes on the Lord. To love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To to give yourself away for your neighbor, to love them as Christ has, and be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And then the last phrase, again, let's come back to the glory and praise of God. And I hope, I hope as we come together this morning, we're not just talking religious talk when we say, yeah, we would like to bring glory to God. I, I hope that's really the desire of your heart as you sit here this morning. As you think about a new year, a new opportunity, I hope, I hope what's, what's in the light for you that you're setting your gaze upon is I have a new year, a new opportunity to bring glory to my Lord, to live my life for Him, to love Him with all my heart, to love people around me and encourage them in the faith, to ex- exhort them and, and to, to be used in whatever ways God would 
lend me. Come back to this thought. Because I don't want you to walk away with saying, with a guilt-ridden conscience of, well, I just got to try to do better. That's not, that's not the motivation of this sermon. That's not what I want you to walk away with. What I do want you to walk away with is praying this prayer for our, us as a church family and praying this prayer for you as an individual. That the Lord would help us to be loving. The Lord would help us to love with all knowledge and all discernment and choose what's best for the glory of His name. Let's pray together. Lord, it is your glory that we desire to be on display. It is your praise that we long to give this morning. It is our lives that we want to give in the spirit of Romans 12 as worship unto you. Holy and acceptable because you've made it possible for us to offer lives holy and acceptable. And so we pray that as we gather this morning, as we depart from this place, that what would be on our hearts is that we would resolve in the power of the Spirit to love you and to love those around us. Some of those are easier to love than others. Some situations easier to deal with than others, but all involve relationship and So, Lord, for the coming year, we pray that as a church congregation, we would put the emphasis on relationship with you first and with our neighbor. And that in all that, we would love for the glory of your name. Pray for your Spirit's power to do abundantly more than all we can ask or think. We place all of our hope and trust in you. And we pray that we would long for the day of Christ Jesus as the Scripture points us toward. For that day is coming sooner than we recognize. There is a day that we will stand before you. There is a time where we will give an account. And no, we will not stand accountable for our sins for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we will stand accountable for what we have done with the gospel that has been given to us, graciously lavished on us in Christ. And so we pray that, Lord, we would hear you say, well done. So I ask you, congregation, this morning, if your resolve would be for the coming year, um, Lord, I want to love you with all my heart, and I want to love the people around me, my neighbor, for the glory of your name. If that would be your resolve this morning, I would ask you to go to the Lord in prayer over that and make that commitment before him, to him, making it, very clear that you're not saying, Lord, I'm, I'm just going to pull myself up by the bootstraps and I'm going to uh, make this happen on my own. But that you would seek him in the Holy Spirit to give you the power needed to have a new perspective on life. Maybe the, maybe the family and friends around you would not classify you as a loving individual. Maybe... maybe The testimony of your life is not one of kindness and gentleness, but one of a bitter spirit or jealousy or anger. I hope you see that these realities are not, if you want to, this is a a call from God to bear fruit for the glory of His name. 
And so if that's your heart this morning and you'd like to come and be at this altar, that's our invitation to you. If you would like to make that um, commitment from your pew, that's fine as well. I would encourage you to make a, a commitment based on the Scripture to the Lord and say yes to Him.